Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. All right, looks like Father Sebastian is back with us, so I'll hand over to him for the conclusion of tonight's webinar. All right. Let's continue. I want to look at this issue here in first uh, in the letter of the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 19 through 26, and then we'll continue on. <clears throat> the, uh, he talks about leaving the body and going to be with Christ. This is an important passage for you for two reasons. First, uh, I think, it, although it maybe seems more relevant to you, it's actually secondary or tertiary, um, and that is an apologetic issue with Jehovah's Witnesses. This is the type of passage that Jehovah's Witnesses really struggle with. Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, believe that when you die, you will cease to exist. They do not believe in the immortality of the soul independent of the body. So they believe that as soon as you die, that your life force, your life, when it's gone, it's gone. It just goes back to God. It's kind of like the, uh, the you're unplugged from your power source, okay? Basically, they make no distinction between, if you want to use philosophical Aristotelian language, what we would call an animal soul and a rational soul. The, for Jehovah's Witnesses, all life is either plant or animal soul. There is no such thing as rational soul except for God, in the sense of the rational being, but I'm not sure how rationally they understand that anyway. But the, um, uh, but, so they believe you cease to exist when you die, and this is why for them prayers to the saints don't make any sense. You can't ask for Paul's intercession because Paul doesn't exist. Anyone who has died and, and, and gone before us, they, they don't exist anymore. They have no existence except for some, you know, some sand and the dirt, you know, or something like that. So um, you come to a passage like this is Jehovah's Witness, and you got to kind of read quickly and move on, pick up your watchtower again. Because Paul talks about leaving the body and going to be with the Lord. In the early Millerite movement from which the Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists come, there was a question about what happens to you when you die as you await the resurrection and the jehovah's witnesses went so far as to say you go you, you cease to exist the jehovah uh, the seven day adventists believe you go into what's called a sleep state unconsciousness and so seven day adventists also reject prayers to the saints not because they believe you cease to exist although some of them actually believe it uh, but rather their argument at least officially is well paul's asleep he can't hear you Okay, well, both of those have a little trouble with this issue. The, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses obviously had the most trouble with the passage. The seven-day Adventist uh, argument that they're asleep, of course, is, uh, becomes a problem when you look at, for example, the story of the rich man Lazarus, right? 
Uh, they're obviously, they're, they're, if Jehovah's Witnesses, they cease to exist, but they're sitting there talking to each other. Uh, if you're a seven-day Adventist, these guys should be asleep. Why are they talking to each other? And then in the book of Revelation, of course, under the altar, the martyrs are crying out for vengeance, although they're asleep. Or if you're Jehovah's Witness, they don't exist. So uh, these are important passages. When you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, to be aware of a few of these passages, you will never convince a Jehovah's Witness to become a Catholic based upon an argument from the Bible. Okay, if you want to know how to talk to a Jehovah's Witness, it's not like talking to a Baptist. Okay, you're not talking to a Bible-believing Christian. The Jehovah's Witness will only use the Bible to the degree that it helps get them uh, convince you to become a Jehovah's Witness. The um, uh, so a passage like this, a Jehovah's Witness will just shake his head, say, "I just don't understand it. I don't know why." But it, obviously, it can't mean what you think it means. Hmm. So they're impenetrable from a rational standpoint, you, what you have to do with them is you have to talk, you have to, you have to whack at the foundation of the watchtower itself, the what the organization and its trustworthiness. If you are dealing with Jehovah's witnesses right now, or you have a friend that is dealing with Jehovah's witnesses, or they're knocking on your door once in a while, I encourage you to go and listen to the Institute of Catholic culture lecture, three-part lecture that my brother and I did many years ago called the, Kingdom of the Cults, a three-part series, the Kingdom of the Cults. There we explain to you how different it is when you're talking to Jehovah's Witness versus talking to a Baptist. Okay, that's actually a secondary, tertiary, or irrelevant issue. What's more important, I think, for you here is to ask yourself a question. What, what do you imagine when you hear Paul say this? Where is Paul going? He's always going to heaven, right? And then I'd say to you, well, how long is that going to last? And I'm going to say something that's going to shock you a little bit right now, and that is this, heaven's not forever. What? Heresy. No, if you understand what I'm saying, salvation is eternal. But what you're thinking of, Paul going to be with the Lord out of body, is a temporary state to go to be in heaven, in the sky, that is up the place where Jesus went, right? This is a temporary state. We believe that after you die and go to be with the Lord, if you die before the Lord returns, that when Christ returns, he will bring the souls with him of those who have died. Why? Because they're baptized into Christ. Where Christ is now, so are all those who have died. And this is why there are prayers to the saints. Right? It's not like Paul's off somewhere or, or Mary is somewhere or so. No, the, the saints are part of the, they're members of the body of Christ. And if Christ is everywhere, then the saints are in Christ everywhere. As St. Paul says, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, we'll come back to that later on in the epistle, and that is the resurrection of the body. Don't you forget that, especially during this Paschal season. Jesus died to give life to those in the tombs, right? We say it in the Creed every Sunday. I believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sin and the resurrection of the dead. You're not talking about Jesus there. That was earlier in the Creed. That's your resurrection, right? And the life of the world to come, which has gravity. You can read about the end of the book of Revelation as we did in our study last time 
in our look at the New Testament. We'll come back to that later in the epistle where Paul talks about that resurrection of the body. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, right? So live your life right now in your body in accordance with, with Christ, right? It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you and that you stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear omen to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from Christ. Right? So look at what is, what is the clear omen of their destruction and, and your salvation? He says, be of one mind, one spirit, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is the clear sign to them of their destruction and your salvation. Right now as we speak, as we sit in our comfortable seats, our chairs, our lazy boys, in our comfortable living rooms or wherever you are, maybe as Daniel mentioned, sipping a glass of wine, there are Christians in Syria who are being beheaded by godless Muslims right now. There are Christians who are being crucified right now, being mocked by Muslims. And through your prayers and the grace of God, those Christians will die preaching the faith. And do you know what scares a Muslim? Is when they see a Christian going to his death with no fear and with love, praying for those that are about to kill him. When they see that and they see the Christian die, they suddenly realize there's something wrong. And it's the very people that are killing these Christians right now that are converting in droves. As Christians are dying in Syria, thousands of Muslims right now are converting all over the world. And so pray for the Christians in Syria. Pray that the ancient church that was there from the time of Paul to today will not be snuffed out. Pray that they may, may that the martyrdom may uh, bring about a great fruit for the church. As the church has always said, the, the church is watered by the blood of the martyrs. Pray that the persecution may come to an end. Pray for their joy and, their, and, their, and the release from their captivity. But at the same time, do not lose heart. Do not be frightened. Because it is a clear sign of their destruction that is your enemy and our salvation. And in that, the gospel is preached. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Remember what happened in Philippi when Paul was there. So the church in Philippi is persecuted. Thessalonica, they were very persecuted there. So the church in Philippi is under some persecution. And Paul says, as he says elsewhere, this is a participation in the sufferings of Christ. Right? The church is the body of Christ. And so to the degree that you are a Christian, to the degree you're part of the body of Christ, to the degree that you're going to participate in the sufferings of Christ. 
And so it is an honor, he says, not only to be able to believe in Christ, but to be able to suffer with him. You can make a little note for yourself there to Colossians 1.24, where he says uh, that famous line. Uh, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, you Colossians, because I make up in my body that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. You might think, Come on now. I saw Mel Gibson passion. There was no lack of suffering. There. That's what he's talking about. you got to keep reading. He says, the body of Christ, that is the church. Right? So Paul sees in his sufferings, he is shouldering the burden for weaker Christians in the, in the church that all must participate in the body of Christ, not only in his sufferings, but also in his future glory. That is his resurrection. Engaged in the same conflict with you, uh, which you saw and now here to be mine. So I'm suffering right now in prison for you and with you. Chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Right? He calls the Philippians to perfect unity, right? Christian communion. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility, count others better than yourselves. You can hear it's like a father talking to his kids, right? He loves these people. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, right, as an example, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped at, held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, even death on a cross, right? Why is he saying this? You know, you've heard this thing before a million times. You've heard This is a great hymn from Paul. Maybe this may be an ancient Christian hymn that Paul has preserved for us in his epistle, but it may just be Paul waxing eloquently here. The Paul, though, in the context, why is Paul saying that? That's what's important for us. He's showing what Christ did as an example for the Christians of Philippi. He says, love one another, give up things for one another, right? If you want to know why, look at Jesus, right? Jesus, Jesus took on the form of a slave, humbled himself, even was put to death for the sake of his brethren, right? And so you too must model Christ. And if you have modeled Christ in that way, then you can expect to model Christ in part two of the story. Look at this. He says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I had a Jehovah's Witness the other day come to my door. They come out once every couple of years, and they don't come back. But he came to my door, and they and he said, uh, he said, you know, there's no way Jesus can be God. I mean, look at think about Philippians. Really? You really want to look at Philippians? He said, yeah. I said, well, let's go there. Philippians chapter two. And he read this. He said, you see, he he he's he's uh, he's he's in human form. I said, well, look, that's the whole story. He's 
he is taking on a human form, a human nature, which is of a lower level than the divine nature. But because of that, he is now exalted to the level to which he was before. But guess what? He brought his human nature with him. And look what name he gets. A name that is above every other name. He is Christ the Lord. Now, I asked him, what passage of the Old Testament is Paul referring to here? No idea. In the Jehovah's Witness Bible, no reference to Isaiah. I said, well, turn with me to Isaiah, right? So I turned to Isaiah. We looked in chapter 45. This whole section of Isaiah is all about the fact that there is only one true God. And who is he? Yahweh. Over and over you hear, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is Elohim. Now, what's Jesus' name? Yahweh saves, right? And we are now told by Paul that Jesus takes the human nature and raises it to the heavenly abode, right? And this is, of course, a foretaste of what, what, what we have in baptism and participation in Christ. And so, therefore, he gets the name that's above every other name, even in his human nature, right? He is the Lord of glory. A couple years, they'll be back again. I'll get to talk to him. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that has to be read in light of the whole passage here. These verses and things are often, you hear them quoted in apologetic texts and stuff like that, which are very nice, fine. But the, the text is much more beautiful and it flows you know, you read the whole thing and forget your Baptist friend who's arguing about eternal, you know. Uh, surety of his salvation or whatever. He says, he's talking to the Philippians, says, look, be of one mind. Love one another so much that be willing to give up your own life for your, for your neighbor. For example, what Christ did. And he gives this beautiful example of Christ, who was then not only humbled, but allowed himself to be humbled, but was raised to glory, right? And so now he says to them, so you too, my brethren, must work out your salvation in likewise manner, in fear and trembling, right? Work out your salvation by working every day, walking the, wa the ways of Christ, loving your neighbor, giving yourself up for him, and even possibly unto death. But you will be glorified with Christ and given that name that is above every other name, right? For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So don't worry. You don't have to do it all. We talked about this in our last study, that salvation, the fathers of the church described salvation as, uh, or salvation, the process of salvation, what we call theosis or sanctification, as a synergia. Sin, with, together, and ergia, energy, right? Work. So a working together. And the fathers describe that working together in a, in a, uh, in a way that is like a, a, a man and a woman dancing on the dance floor, right? Beautiful dance on the dance floor. The, the one is in charge and directing where things are going and often even giving the strength for the woman to do what she's about to do. And then the woman does these beautiful moves on the dance floor at the direction of and often 
given the momentum and support of the one who is leading the dance. But the dance doesn't happen unless the woman decides to go along with the dance, right? Unless she decides to participate in that. And so salvation for us is that same example. God is the leading, is leading the dance. We are participating like that woman on the dance floor. And so he says, don't worry. Work out your salvation, fear and trembling, right? Go about your life, loving your neighbor, giving up for yourself, and, and even unto death. And don't worry, God takes care of the rest, right? He is leading the way. He is there working in you this good work. He gives you the grace, the power to do these things. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Again, you can see this whole passage is about the same topic. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, that's Christ's second coming, right? I may be proud of you. I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain with you. Even if I am to be poured out as a libation upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, right? Even if I die doing this, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely anxious for your welfare. They all look after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But Timothy's worth, you know, how as a son with a father, he has served me, served with me in the gospel. Remember on Paul's second journey in Acts chapter 16, he passes through Asia Minor, through the churches of Galatia, and then he goes off into Macedonia. And that's where, when he was passing through Asia Minor, through Galatia, the Galatian churches, he picks up Timothy. He meets this guy, Timothy, and he brings him then along on his journeys, and Timothy becomes one of his disciples. Timothy was already a Christian when Paul met him, well spoken of by all the Christians in Lystra and Derbe, but Paul takes him along and teaches him many things after that. And so Timothy travels as his faithful companion with him all the way until we find his fourth journey when he finally leaves him in Ephesus as the bishop. He says, but Timothy's worth, uh, worth you know, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it is will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself shall come also. Make a little note there again. Put a little, maybe an arrow pointing forward you know, future fourth journey or something like that. So Paul is going to be released from prison. We know he will be released from prison. He himself seems to hint that he knows it as well. And he plans after this journey to get back after this uh, journey in prison, uh, after his imprisonment, to go on a fourth journey. Or if you want to count his imprisonment, his fourth journey, then a fifth journey, depending on how you want to count them, right? There were three journeys of Paul and then his imprisonment, which ends up in Rome, which ends up almost like a journey itself. So however you want to count them, you have the three journeys of freedom, 
Then you have his imprisonment or captivity, uh, on, which is almost like another journey. And then you have a post-captivity journey, depending on if you want to call that as fourth or fifth, however you want to count them. In that, that post-captivity journey, he goes down into Ephesus, leaves Timothy there, goes to Crete, leaves Titus there, then heads off to Macedonia, and then wrote his letters to Timothy from there and his letter to Titus. And by the time he gets to what's called 2 Timothy, the writing of 2 Timothy, we find that he's in prison again. And it seems like it's in Rome. So Paul is re-imprisoned, maybe in Philippi, the first place he was imprisoned. Who knows what happened? And then he ends up eventually in Rome again. And that's uh, when he's writing his second letter to Timothy in his chains, again, his second imprisonment. And in that letter, he says in chapter four that he knows he's not going to be released. He knows that this is his, this is the end of the line. The race is over. He's run the race. He says, I've got the crown. It's all over. So um, this is, and of course we know shortly after that, then he is martyred for the faith. Okay. So he wants to send Timothy. So this is his first imprisonment in Rome. He wants to send Timothy to go uh, check on the Philippians and see how they are, and then to bring him word of what's going on. Maybe not anticipating a quick release at this point. <laughs> Verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, Fellow, soldier, fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. So the Philippians, they were already Paul's favorite community. Okay, he loved these guys and they loved him. But they went over the top on this one. Paul is in prison in Rome, and they pick one of their own men, and they give him some gifts. Who knows, maybe some cash. Maybe some, you know, dates and figs. Who knows what it was? And sends Epaphroditus from Philippi all the way to Rome. They paid for his trip. They're funding the whole thing just to send this guy to Paul to deliver a gift and to stay there with Paul and serve him as he has need. So that they themselves in this one person, Epaphroditus, could be with Paul in his imprisonment. Beautiful. Well, unfortunately, the guy got sick. So here's what happens. It says, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. You know, maybe <laughs> drank the water or something. Who knows what happened? Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And that I may be less anxious. Can you imagine? 
get him home before it happens again, right? If this guy dies on Paul's hands, you know. <laughs> so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete your service to me. Okay, so risking his life to complete your service to me. Again, you can see that the Philippians have char have charged this guy to go be with Paul and take care of him. But now he's coming back. What are you doing? You were supposed to stay there with Paul while he's in prison. Right? So Paul lets them know he was ill. I sent him back to you. It was my choice to send him back to you, and I wanted to do it. Okay, so don't give him a hard time when he shows up. He almost died trying to complete your service to me. So he, he definitely gives the guy some, some backing here. In chapter 3, it says this, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not irksome to me and is safe for you. Now, what does he mean by that? To write the same things to you. There are two different ways you could take that. That could be a reference to a lost epistle to the Philippians, right? To write the same things to you again, right? So you could, some commentators would read it that way. As we see in Polycarp's uh, uh, letter to the Philippians, the, uh, he says, he refers to Paul having written two, or having written epistles, he says in the plural, having written epistles to you. We talked about the beginning. So is this the possible reference in the in one of the epistles, in his second epistle to the Philippians, a reference to a lost first epistle? Possible. It's possible. Another way to read it, if that is the case, if this is a reference to an earlier epistle, remember last time we talked about uh, 1 Corinthians and this question. It seems in 1 Corinthians that there may have been an earlier letter which means there are three letters of the Corinthians. You say, well, maybe we've lost one. Well, it's possible. Who knows? But it's also possible, some have suggested, by looking at 1 Corinthians, how there's a couple spots where there's a little bit of a disjunct. And is that, are these spots where maybe the lectionary cycle of the church in Corinth, reading, reading this early letter of Paul, We'll call it proto First Corinthians and First Corinthians together, one and then the second one, reading one together. Eventually, they become one text. Would they do that? Well, we have evidence of that kind of thing happening in the Old Testament. If you look at the book of Isaiah, if you've read Isaiah or Jeremiah, you can see this already. Isaiah is a book in our Bible which is a composition of two authors. Now, I'm not talking about first and second Isaiah and that kind of late Protestant German nonsense. What I'm talking about is this. When you read Isaiah and you read along, you notice all of a sudden that you're, you're reading a story about something Isaiah is saying, thus says the Lord, and then all of a sudden you get a, a, a historical narrative that is cut and pasted right out of, out of Second Kings. In fact, the book of Isaiah, as you have it in your Bible typically, will show you this. Most of it will be, or a lot of it will be in italics, 
and then you'll come to a spot where it's all non-italics or it'll be all in verse right uh, and then you'll see a section in prose paragraph blocks that's the editor trying to indicate to you showing you that this section here is from second kings it's cut and pasted right out of it now how did that happen second kings was completed after isaiah was long dead so you can't say well maybe isaiah was writing these things no Isaiah had scribes that were writing down his prophecies. His prophecies were gathered together in a big pile of scrolls. Isaiah prophesied over many kings' lives, the reigns of many kings. So he had early prophecies, late prophecies, middle prophecies. So each one of his prophecies was a scroll written down, gathered by his disciples. Those scrolls, would have been maintained, kept by the Jews, those who remained in, uh, in Judea during the exile, and those who were taken into exile. Second Kings, the book, is completed only during the exile, at the earliest, because it concludes with the story of the exile. That means that if Second Kings has been cut and pasted into Isaiah, that means that the form of the book of Isaiah we have today is a post-exilic compilation of the scrolls of Isaiah, now all as one big long scroll, with little bits of Second Kings in it, interspersed. Now, why are those bits there? Because the Jews wanted you to read Isaiah's scrolls, his prophecies, in light of the historical context in which he said them. If you want to understand why Isaiah said this, oh, well, here's what happened to Hezekiah at that time. And then Isaiah said this, oh, and here's what happened at that time. So they give you little blocks, and you can see what they were probably doing in the post-exilic synagogues and in the temple. They were reading a scroll from Isaiah, and then stopping, and then grabbing 2 Kings and reading that scroll, and stopping, and then going and reading Isaiah, and stopping, and then going and reading 2 Kings, and stopping. So you can get it interspersed, so you can get the historical context. Eventually, a scribe figures it out and says, why don't we just make this one scroll? So you then have the scroll of Isaiah as you and I have it. That is, all of Isaiah's scrolls, prophecies, as one long text, broken up with pieces out of 2 Kings. Jeremiah is the same way. So if they were doing that back in the Old Testament, could maybe Corinth have done this with what you and I call 1 Corinthians? Possible. Is maybe Philippians? Could it be something like that? Possible, but Philippians has a nice flow to it different than 1 Corinthians. What's another solution? As I mentioned to you earlier, the letters to the Thessalonians are just next door, right? Philippi is just around the corner from Thessalonica. And so Paul, uh, so Paul's letters to the Thessalonians surely by now are copied and are being read in the letters in the, in the church of Philippi. So then, to write the same things to you that I have had to write to others. Could be also a reference to what he wrote in the letter to the Ephesians, where he deals with the very topic he's going to deal with right now, and that is circumcision. Look what it says here in chapter 3, verse 2. So, to write to you the same things as I've written to others, or to write to you the same things that I've had to write to you before, Everyone take it. It's not irksome to me. And besides, it's a good idea for you. It's safe. What is he going to write? What's he writing? Look, 
Look out for the dogs. Look out for the lawless ones, the evil workers, the workers of lawlessness. Who are they? Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Oh, now I know who they are. Right? You remember when you read the letter to the Galatians, we read that together in our study of the New Testament. Turn with me for a second over to Galatians chapter 5. So you remember the letter to the Galatians was written to explain to the churches of Galatia that there was no need to be circumcising their boys. Remember, we talked about if you have your uh, your a map of the of the uh, you know the Pauline journeys. I gave that to you in our notes on the study of the New Testament. If you look at the movement of the Judaizers, they travel from Jerusalem up to Antioch. But then Paul goes down to Antioch, uh, down to Jerusalem, and they have the council. And at that council, the Judaizer heresy is condemned. And those guys are no longer welcome in Jerusalem. Now Paul goes to Antioch and delivers the declaration of the council. Those guys aren't going to stick around. So where could they go? They could only go north. So it seems like what happens is, as I explained to you last time we were together, the letter to the Galatians is written to the churches of Asia Minor, Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, to clarify for them that there is no need to be circumcised their boys and keeping kosher. Unfortunately, they were doing this under the influence of the Judaizers. Look at chapter 5. He says, this is Galatians chapter 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, I addressed this in the last study, so just in case. If you're an American and you were born in an American hospital or in a British hospital and you're a man, you're probably circumcised. This has nothing to do with the topic, okay? That has to do with modern American medical practice, okay? Uh, which is a debatable issue. That's something else. So this is not the normal experience of Christians throughout history. If you go outside of you know, British American medical influence, go to Italy, go to Mexico, go to the Philippines. None of them are circumcised. Um, and uh, so Christians did not circumcise. This is something they did not do. Gentile Christians did not circumcise, but some started to out of fear of the Judaizer heresy. We talked about this last time. And so Paul has to correct them and says, you Gentile Christians, you don't need to be circumcised. If you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. They were being circumcised to keep you kosher, thinking that if they kept the Torah, they would be saved. Because you're putting your trust in, in, a, in a dead covenant, not in Christ. He says, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole Torah. You think they were doing that? No, right? These Galatians, they were, they were like Seventh-day Adventists, right? They're just dabbling around in the stuff. Little Sabbath keeping here, you know, try on the yarmulke, eat some matzo balls and gefilte fish and feel Jewish. But they weren't keeping all 365 laws of the Torah. 
So he says, you want, to, you want to be saved by the Torah? You have to keep the entire Torah perfectly, which is impossible, of course. But you have to do it all perfectly, okay? The Galatians weren't doing that. You are severed from Christ. You would be justified by the Torah. Look at that circumcision language there. It's the reverse of circumcision, right? You have fallen away from the grace, the free gift from Christ, which is Paul says, in this very letter, in chapter 3, verse 27, is through your baptism into him. He says, for in Christ, uh, I'm sorry, for through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope, the hope of righteousness. That's resurrection. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith, the faith, working through love. The faith. We have in our English translations often, uh, even in something like this, this is a Catholic edition of the RSV, you have a still a Protestant way of speaking, faith versus works, as opposed to the works of the Torah, which versus the faith. The faith. When you have when you don't have the article there, it can sound very Lutheran, faith versus works, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about whether or not you're going to try and save yourself by keeping kosher and circumcision, right, the works of the Torah, works of the law of Moses, versus the faith, the faith in Jesus Christ. How do you get in Jesus Christ? What is the faith? Baptism. Galatians 3.27, all of you who have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ, right, like a garment, have put on Christ. So then he says this, look at this, verse Chapter 5, verse 12. For you, I says, uh, verse 12, I wish those who would unsettle you would mutilate themselves. So he's, he's a little upset here. Uh, as you know, Galatians and 2 Corinthians, Paul is not happy. They're the exact opposite of the Philippians. So he sees these Judaizer Christians coming upon these poor Gentiles and tricking them into being circumcised as mutilating the flesh. And putting their trust in a dead covenant that's not going to save them anyway. He even says, look at this in chapter um, chapter 6. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is to those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that would compel you to be circumcised. And not only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ, for even those who receive circumcision do not themselves keep the Torah, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. But far be it from me to glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For Paul, when is that? No, Romans chapter 6, in your baptism. Look what he says, for neither circumcision accounts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Right? And for Paul, that's your baptism into Christ, Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 16. Peace and mercy be upon all who walk by this law, this rule, upon the Israel of God. You see the word Israel of God there? Now look what he says. So he, Paul understands 
that he and the Christians of Galatia and the church in Jesus Christ is the true Israel. But he doesn't use the word true, he just refers to it as the Israel, right? If Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus is the perfect Jew in his human nature, if Jesus fulfilled the law, then those who are in Christ are the perfect Israel, the true Israel. He says this in many other places. You have been circumcised, says the Colossians, with a circumcision not made with hands, through your baptism into Christ. Right? Christ was baptized. If you're in Christ, then you're circumcised. Right? Christ is circumcised, so you're circumcised through your baptism. So he says here, upon the Israel of God. Now flip back to the letter to the Philippians and look what he says. He says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, verse 3, for we are the circumcision. Now the RSV puts true there, but it's not there in the, in the Greek. It's what he means. It's called, that's called a dynamic translation, right, to clarify. Right? Otherwise you say, what? We are the circumcision? So you have to understand Paul's argument. We are the circumcision. We are the true Israel. Right? We are the people of God. So true circumcision, fine translation, but you get the strength of what he's saying there. We are the circumcision. Right? How? As he says in Colossians chapter two, chapter 2, you have been circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands in the putting off your body and the baptism into Christ. And then he, he says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And that's a good spot to stop our study tonight. And we'll pick up there uh, next time. I want you for your homework to make sure you've read chapters 1 and 2 of Philippians. Maybe read a little bit of uh, chapter 3 and even 4 if you have time. But it would be very helpful for you to also go back and review our study of Galatians. And if you did not get a chance to do that, you want to go back and listen to the recording. We also addressed this issue in uh, a study on the Pauline Epistles, Acts, the key to the Pauline Epistles, another study from the Institute of Catholic Culture. And now I think we can move to questions. All right. All right. So uh, let's jump into some question and answer here. Uh, we have a question. Uh, LTV asks, the faith, is the definite article always or sometimes before the noun? Sometimes, sometimes not. The article works differently uh, in Greek than it does in English. Okay, so that's the first thing. Sometimes the article, when you would in, in English expect it to be there, is not there. Sometimes when you would expect it uh, not to be there, it is there. Right? For example, let me give an example of this. A name in Greek always has the article. You would never say Jesus. You always say the Jesus. O Jesus. You would never say John. You always say the John. Right? The Mary. <laughs> okay? So what? Well, we don't talk that way in English. Right? We don't use articles like that. Now, in Greek or in English, when we use an article, typically we mean something is definite. We use definite article. When we use the indefinite article, we mean indefinite. But in Greek, there is no indefinite article. By the time you get to the first century, they're starting to use out of need, just to make, clarify things a bit, they're starting to develop the use of the numeral one as an, art, an indefinite article, which comes out weird in, English, in Greek. You know, say, instead of saying, 
a, an apple, you say one apple, right? In English, that means a little, something a little different. One apple I mean versus two apples. Um, but in Greek, they start to use it that way. And there are some places you start to see it happening already in the New Testament. The numeral one being used as a substitute for the lack of having an indefinite article. Uh, but in ordinarily in New Testament Greek, basically it's this. They use the article uh, to indicate definite and lack of article to indicate that something's indefinite. And then there's a bunch of cases in between where they do both either way. There are places where something is clearly definite and they drop the article because of the construction, like for example, with an, um, a preposition. There are places where they'll drop the article just for efficiency's sake. They'll assume you, they'll use the article early, and then after that, they don't use the article. Isn't that confusing? Well, this is at a time when ink was very expensive, paper was very expensive, and uh, and not very many people knew how to write, so you had to hire someone to write. So they, you know, charge you by the word. And so what they would do is they would, for efficiency's sake, and even in just regular Greek speaking, they just drop things that are unnecessary. Very often in Greek, you don't have the verb to be. Is or was in Greek. When you're reading New Testament, you see is or was in your New Testament. A lot of times you go back in the Greek, it's not there. The author assumes you know by the context that the verb to be is supposed to be there. And in English, it's not even a sentence, right? There's no verb. But the verb to be is assumed in the sentence. This is why the verb to be is or was is usually at the very end of a sentence in Greek, also in Latin, because they order words in importance in a sentence. And so the word, the verb to be, yeah, you can assume it. So they usually throw it at the end or it just drops off the end. It doesn't even appear. And so the same with articles in Greek. The, uh, if you're reading the word faith in Paul's epistles, you'll get about half the time uses the article, half the time not. But it's obvious that he's not saying the faith, a faith, the faith, a faith, but he's simply saying the faith. And he'll say faith, 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 the faith, 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 faith. So what he's doing is he's this normal Greek style. Drop things that are unnecessary and can be assumed of your audience. Great. We have another question from Andy who asks, if priests do not come until around the year 70 AD, why do we say that Jesus instituted the priesthood on Holy Thursday? Oh, very nice. Excellent question. Jesus is, as we say in the Epistle to the Hebrews, in our theology, the great high priest. Okay, the great high priest. The priest is the one who offers himself for the community. Right? He's the great mediator between God and man. <clears throat> they give Aaron the priest in the Old Testament. Okay, and That's the image there in the Epistle to the Hebrews, that idea of the high priest. Now, who is the great priest, in that sense, in your diocese? The bishop. The bishop is the priest in your diocese. So don't call him the priest. You're giving him a kind of a downgrade there, aren't you? No. No. The word that we use priest 
as a title for the guy like me who gets sent out by the bishop to go take care of these lesser churches, okay, the parishes, is a part, it's, first of all, it's a title that is first and foremost of the bishop himself, and it's a participation. I am only allowed as a priest to go out and act in the priesthood of the bishop, and only in certain ways, by his permission and direction. The same with a deacon. A bishop is a deacon, a minister, a servant, and he gives his he gives to certain men a participation in that in that ministry through him, what we call the diaconate. Okay, I, again, something might have been shocking for you. I said earlier, Jesus is the first apostle. Really, that's what the the uh, the Epistle of Hebrews says, right? He's the first apostle. What? An apostle? Kind of downgrade, isn't it? No, apostolos means one who is sent. He's sent by God, right? Sent by the Father. And then he, he says, as a father sent me, John chapter 20, verse 21 and 23, so I send you, right? They're participating in Jesus's apostleship. Our life is a participation in the divine life, right? You often hear someone say, how, does, how can Peter be the rock? Isn't Jesus the rock? Yes. And yes. Right? Peter's role, or the Bishop of Rome after him, is a participation in Jesus' role as the rock and foundation of the church. It's a participation in. Your life is a participation in the divine life of the Father through Jesus Christ. You are members of his body. We don't have time to get into 1 Corinthians or Romans, the other, Ephesians, the place where he really talks a lot about this, but this is why you will be raised from the dead, because Christ's body was raised from the dead. This is why we say we are members of the body of Christ. This is why you have the Holy Spirit in you. Jesus is the Christ, and now you become a Christ, a Christian. By virtue of your being a member of the body of Christ, and when we say member, we don't mean as the word we use the word member in modern English. It's a, we got to find a different word in our English translations. Member is perfectly fine in older English, but today member means uh, one of a bunch of people who belong to a club. Right? That's not what we're talking about. Member is being used in your English translations in those places in the way it's used sometimes in medical school. This is one of my members. One of my members was severed off, okay? A member, a, a, the, one, the part of your body, part. In the Greek there, it's literally, that's what it is, the word part. Part, okay? So you are a part of the body of Christ. You are a part of the body of Christ. Not a member in the event, a bunch of individuals who belong to some sort of club because you all have the same, you know, baptismal certificates or something. No, you are members of the body of Christ, like your thumbs, fingers, and ears and things are. Paul really meant that. We just kind of talk about it and use it in theology, and, oh, that's nice. But the early church believed that. And if you don't believe it, you don't understand why you were baptized, why you were chrismated, and why you receive his body and blood. Right? That's what it means. Okay. Did I answer the question? I can't remember. I got off on tangent there, I think. I think you did. We have time for just one more question. Uh, Lisa asks, there are three times in the epistle where Paul uses the term the day of Christ. 
what is he referring to? Can it be read to mean Christ's second coming? Absolutely. The day of Christ is a reference to Christ's second coming, and we're going to talk about that next time. I, I, I was getting so excited. I was moving along too quickly. I jumped into chapter 3. I was going so fast I wanted to get to it. Because, see, Paul's epistle was written to the Hebrews not to be broken up over four hours. Okay? This thing could be read. You could sit down and read it in 15 minutes. Right? It's very short. If you're reading carefully, maybe a half an hour, maybe an hour max, if you're reading super slow, that's how you're supposed to hear it. So things that Paul has said earlier in the epistle, he's expecting you're going to be hearing in just a few minutes. And so what we're going to be doing next time is, we're going to have to, as we hit things in chapter 3, I'm going to keep referring back. Now, don't forget, we talked about this a week ago, right? Here was this other, uh, he talked about this earlier. There's going to be things he's going to talk about uh, very clearly, especially the resurrection of the body. It's going to refer back to things he said earlier. So, yes, when we talk about the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ, those are, days, those are references to the coming resurrection. When Paul talks about you participating in the glory of Christ, that's Paul's way of talking about, in one of his many ways, about your future bodily resurrection. This is so important today. This is the topic that you heard this Sunday in the gospel reading, right? That Jesus rose from the dead with his real physical body. Again, an interesting Jehovah's Witness apologetic note on that one. If you want to learn more about that, you can listen to the lecture on the kingdom of the cults. All right, any other questions or are we done? I think that's uh, enough for tonight. Thank you very much, Father. That was wonderful. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.